John 11 is our place of residence, as uh, seen there. I'll be reading portions of scripture along the way, so we don't need to read it all beforehand. But it's really a, a, a story about Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and certainly uh, about the Lord as well. But to Mary, Martha, Lazarus, uh, two, two women and one man, they were presumably not married, none of them, possibly living under the same roof. And they were good friends of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, during his time here on earth. Uh, they lived a couple of miles outside the old city of Jerusalem in a little hamlet that was called Bethany. Uh, Jesus would uh, occasionally, I, I don't know how often it was, but when he was in the area of Jerusalem and ministering, he would often uh, times retreat to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Uh, they had truly the gift of hospitality, and it was a time of rest and refreshment from a rigorous ongoing ministry that uh, Jesus sustained during that time. And really, the story opens uh, when the disciples and the Lord were east of the Jordan River, and that would be modern-day Jordan in which they were in. And a word, perhaps, through some sort of a runner or whatever who knew where they were at uh, brings them a note that uh, said, uh, Lazarus is sick, and it was certainly with the request to come. And uh, Jesus, however, um, let his disciples know what was going on, and they purposefully stayed away until Lazarus had died and actually been placed in the grave. And then he told them, we're going to Bethany. Uh, when they reached Bethany, uh, they found a village in somewhat of a crisis. And a crisis occurs in your life and in my life, when life itself edges out of control. Uh, it's no longer answers to a formula. It no longer is predictable. What happens during a time of a crisis is that clouds kind of come over a very clear sky. Now, in this case, it was obviously the death of Lazarus. And again, Jesus' dear friend, and uh, thankfully, Christ is worthy of uh, meeting the needs of this particular occasion. Now, in their encounter with Christ, uh, those who are in mourning find comfort. And uh, there's comfort in truth and comfort in tears, comfort in anger, and comfort in grace. And those are the four major thoughts I want to put before you today. A familiar, a familiar time. Uh, <clears throat> we want to investigate each one of them with the hope that we might become more thoughtful and less anxious when hard times come our in our time. Now, first of all, we find comfort of truth with Martha. And I just want to read some scriptures to you. Verse 20. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. 
Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, which means the anointed one. You are the Son of God, which is a statement of deity. Even he who comes into the world, and that would, of course, be the Messiah, the sent one, who was promised in the Old Testament. And what you find here on the part of Martha is a marvelous affirmation from a very sharp, very smart, theologically astute woman here. And in this interchange with Martha, Jesus is offering not so much a consolation, but a resurrection, and that resurrection is going to be embodied in him. You see, the, ter- the eternal state, uh, it, a few times in the Bible, is, is uh, said to be the new heavens and the new earth. And the new heavens and the new earth are really not about destruction and replacement. It's about redemption, about renovation. Now, Romans 8 reminds us that creation lies under the curse of sin. And creation eagerly waits to be redeemed uh, and made new. Uh, To destroy something, for instance, completely and then replace it with something new would not be an act of redemption. To redeem is to save that which is in danger of being lost. And when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, his eyes were on the eternal state of his followers, and that would mean you and me. Uh, The eternal state uh, is not so much removing the bad or removing us and leaving the bad. When you talk about the eternal state, it's talking about removing the bad and leaving us. In other words, life will be so good that when the bad is removed, that it will be like the bad has never even happened. Maybe you've had a bad dream in the past. Uh, Maybe in the middle of the night somehow uh, you lost someone who was very dear to you. Maybe a friend or a fiance or a husband or a wife or a child. And then you woke up and you say, oh my goodness, I'm so relieved it was just happened to be a bad dream. Uh, everything that you were living through uh, in the darkness of the night as you were dreaming that uh, didn't come true or became untrue, if you please. And there was a, uh, an analogy that Tim Keller made uh, that came right at the very end of the, the Lord of the Rings when Sam, when Sam Wise uh, thought everything was wrong and he wakes, ends up waking up. And the sun is out, and he sees Gandalf, and he cries out to that great wizard, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead, he says. But Gandalf said, you know, we're not dead. You know, and what, what happened here is that he asked the question, is everything that was bad, did it become untrue? 
And when Jesus looks at something like that, when he looks at the final redemption of his people, the answer would be absolutely yes. And that's what a resurrection will do. It'll, it'll take, in that, in that great mourning, God will not simply console us. He'll take away all of the horrible memories of everything bad that's ever happened, and it will be consumed in such a way that it will seem like a bad dream. And that's what it means when the Bible says that God will destroy evil and suffering without destroying you and me. You see, our glorious future gives us hope during the adversity that we encounter in the present. Martha needed to hear those words, and maybe you and I need to hear them as well. In other words, disease and disappointment and death, they're not unfamiliar experiences to us, but they will be someday. And so when Jesus encounters Martha... He gives her truth. Martha needed truth. Second, we find the comfort of tears in Mary. Uh, Martha runs back and she tells Mary, and Mary's in the home, and Mary runs out and meets Jesus on the road to Bethany with his disciples as well. And Mary said the same thing that Martha said. He says, if you would have been here a little earlier, my brother would not have died. And notice what Jesus says in verse 33. Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping. And he said, and he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And she said, Lord, come and see. When Jesus got to that tomb, by the way, it says that he wept. And so the Jews were saying, man, did he ever love Lazarus. You see, at the gravesite, when Jesus came there, that little cemetery, the little village of, of Bethany, Jesus saw what was going on there, and he literally cried. In other words, his heart was so knit to the hearts of those people that loved Lazarus and yet were crying, that Jesus cried as well. In other words, he feels our pain. He always does, and he's always definitely, infinitely responsive to it. You know, we're his children. And when you have a child, you discover that a chain has kind of been attached to your heart. Uh, You're never without sadness when you have a child that's hurting, maybe a child that's wayward. Uh, children are, are just have a, a way of attaching themselves to our heart. We've lost the ability to, breathe, to be a free spirit in those cases. You know, I, I find it interesting that Jesus wept there at the gravesite of Lazarus when he knew he was going to actually raise him out of the grave a few minutes later. But it was interesting that the deliverance of Lazarus was not able to lessen the intensity of the grief of our Lord. And that's how bound to our own hearts the Lord Jesus is. I mean, consider the universe and consider yourself, you know, compared to the expanse of a universe 
I don't know how big it is. I'm not sure anybody knows how big it is, but we are nothing but a little tiny speck of dust. And yet, interestingly enough, when you hurt and when I hurt, the God of the cosmos hurts with us. He feels our pain. It says in Hosea chapter 11, God says to Israel, my heart recoils within me at what you're doing, but how can I cut you off? In other words, God's love is so great that he can't even chastise you. He can't even chastise me without it turning his stomach, without it giving him a measure of heart failure. And it explains why he is such a generous and consistent, loving, heavenly father. In Psalm 56, God says, I have put your tears in a bottle. He saves every single one of them. You know, it's a great thing when the tender spirit of our Lord carries over to the body of Christ and the empathy that we can have for one another. You know, periodically... You know, we might ask ourselves, you know, when I come and enter into this building here, uh, do I walk into this room and count tears? Uh, we we're always seem to be on the upside, but there are people here that are going through difficult times, hard experiences. Uh, do we have an understanding and an empathy, and are we sensitive enough to to be able to share that with, with other people. Uh, you know, we have, you know, does, do the people here know that we care about them? Uh, in my sphere of influence, do I know that you are hurting and do I care about you? Uh, do you know do people know that you are a safe person that will listen with gentleness rather than harshness? You know, many today are burdened by a sense of uh, not feeling uh, par, not feeling up to it, uh, feeling somewhat worthless. And the world answers that by saying, you know, what you really need to do is learn how to love yourself. Now, that doesn't work very well when you're sinking in a swamp of, of life itself. You see, everybody in this room needs accreditation from the outside. We need individuals, we need friends, we need Bible study partners that will affirm us, that will believe in our potential in spite of the, the ugly stuff that is there as well. You know, Isaiah confessed to being a man of unclean lips. He, he confessed to being weak and sinful. And he knew that. And he confessed that. But when he's kissed, if you please, by this, this burning coal that came from the altar, uh, and he was cleansed by grace, God says to Isaiah, listen, Isaiah, I have a very difficult job. I need someone to go and speak and preach and give a message to people that aren't interested in listening to it. And Isaiah says, I will do it. You see, when you know the value of the Lord and you know that he's inside of you and you know that he's leading you in a direction, you don't have to really be afraid of anything. 
You know, our Lord is the, the perfect counselor. Uh, when we need comfort and when we need truth, he will, he will give us truth. When we need empathy and understanding, he holds back the theology and simply gives us the identification of his own tears. See, God doesn't just fix things for us. He enters into our humanity. And so we find the comfort of tears with Mary. Then the third one is that we find the comfort of anger at the tomb, and that's the anger of death is what we're talking about here. You see, Jesus uh, asked, where, where is he? And, and Mary took him to the tomb. And when he got there, he saw a lot of people crying. And uh, there's a verse in the Gospel of John that says Jesus wept at that point in time. Uh, the, uh, you know, he, he just, he's not a God that just fixes things, thank goodness, but he's a God that enters into our own humanity. Uh, you know, when Jesus looked out over that cemetery in Beth, Bethany, he saw that silent memorial, uh, the devastation that sin has brought on the human race, and it says that he became angry against death, which is our great enemy. You know, when Jesus saw that, uh, when Jesus saw that the death of a friend, uh, he looked at that and it realized it's not an impossible barrier to him. It was really a call to battle. Death was the object of our Savior's wrath. Now, modern people today, modern secularism, if you please, contends that death is natural. It's just simply the next stage in growth itself. It's nothing to be afraid of, nothing to fear. Now, deep down inside, all of us know that that's not true, and that's why we fight so hard to live. You see, whenever you get in the presence of death, instinctively you know that something is wrong because God is life. God is the author of life, physical life, spiritual life, abundant life, eternal life. And he came to earth in order to eventually smite death and give us that eternal life. So there's great comfort that comes in our solidarity with the king of the universe in the sense that we both love life. And so we find the comfort of anger at the tomb. He was angry at man's, woman's great enemy, and that's death itself. And then fourth, we find comfort in the grace of the miracle itself. It says in verse 45, therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary saw what Jesus had done and believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man, and that would be Jesus, is performing many signs. And then it says in verse 53, from that day on, and that would be the Pharisees, the, the priest, uh, they planned together to kill him. Now, killing is what unregenerate people do even when they're religious. 
And perhaps there's another reason why Jesus was troubled when he arrived at the cemetery because he, he knew what the miracle of raising Lazarus from the grave was going to cost him. You see, the resurrection of Lazarus was really the last straw uh, for the enemies of Christ. Uh, when the religious leaders heard that Lazarus was alive, they said, you know, that's it. How are we ever going to control this guy right now? How are we ever going to keep his influence from spreading to the masses? And so they plot together to simply take his life. And it eventually happened. You know, as Jesus walks to the tomb, there was probably a little voice that said inside of him, you know, if you interrupt this funeral, you'll be causing your own. If you bring him out of the grave, you're going to be burying yourself. And Jesus said, I'll do it. Now, in Genesis 22, we have a very familiar story uh, where God told Abraham to take his son, and this would be the promised son. He had Ishmael and Isaac, but Isaac would be the progenitor of the chosen people. And he says, I want you to take him to Mount Moriah, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice there. And Abraham didn't quite understand the command of the Lord because it was through Isaac that the chosen people would come. But somehow he believed that if he went and offered Isaac on Mount Moriah, that God would eventually raise him from the dead because God made a promise that Abraham would be the father of a great nation from whom the Messiah would in fact come. And so when... Abraham and Isaac were going up the hill to Mount Moriah. Isaac was carrying the bundle of wood, and he said, Dad, we have the wood and we have the fire. Where about the sacrifice that we're going to offer on this mountain? And remember what Abraham said. He says, God himself will provide a sacrifice. And when he got up there and they built the altar and, and then added the wood and uh, Abraham laid his own son. I'm sure his son right there on the altar itself. Isaac was probably a lot younger and stronger than he was. He could have overpowered his dad, but he trusted his dad, and he, he himself was on there. And as Abraham raised that knife to slay his own son, God stopped him and says, Now I know that you love me, Abraham, because you have not withheld your only son, so to speak. I'm sure Abraham was quite relieved at that. And uh, Abraham called the place Jehovah-Jireh. Remember, Jehovah-Jireh me means the Lord will provide because there was a ram that was caught in the thicket and the ram became the sacrifice. And the, you know, but it doesn't mean the Lord has provided, the Lord will provide. Uh, it, it, that sacrifice of that ram looked forward to a greater sacrifice that was yet in the future. And God provided the ram in place of the son. Wonderful. But Abraham knew that uh, a greater sacrifice would ultimately come, and that would be the Lord Christ. You see, Isaac is saved, and Lazarus is saved, and you're saved, and I'm saved, why is that? Well, it's because in contrast to Isaac, 
on Mount Moriah. Jesus bled on Mount Calvary. When God the Father held the knife over his own son, there was nobody there to say, stop it. And he went ahead and he slew his own son as he was nailed to the cross. It really wasn't the Romans who killed him. It was the father who killed his own son. It was the father's plan to kill his earthly son because of his love for you, love for me. You know, the message of Scripture is simply that God is so committed to ending suffering and death that he was willing to have Jesus become incarnate and bring suffering and death upon himself. You see, the love of God is not measured by the suffering that exists in the world. Uh, That's a commentary on the horrific nature of the world in which we live. The love of God is measured by the depth that he would go to rid the world of suffering and death. And so we find a measure of comfort here in God's truth, God's tears, God's anger, and God's grace. Uh, You know, there are seven miracles that are recorded in the Gospel of John. And we've just looked at the very last of the seven miracles. And the miracles are are really signs. And a sign happens to be a label. You know, there are a lot of people that uh, drive past this nondescript white building on Lake Street here in Irvine every Sunday morning, and they have absolutely no idea what goes on here unless they see that tiny little sign that we have that says Harvest Community Church. If they see that sign, then they know that this is a place where God's people, where men and women and youth and children gather together to worship the living God. And the sign communicates simply to those that pass it that this is the place where the people of God gather. Now, the miracles of Jesus are said to be signs. They're calling cards by everybody who passes by. they, They know that Christ is a miracle working God of glory. Now, the first of those signs that we looked at, those miracles in the Gospel of John, was turning the water into wine. Gary. Another miracle occurred when the lame man was made well at the pool, Jerry. And then the third sign was the the turning, I I should say, uh, the third sign was the feeding of the multitude. That was Gary. And then another was the healing of the man that was born blind. That was Jerry. And now we have the raising of Lazarus, and that's Gary. So the miracles are all signs that revealed the glory of Christ. Jerry Lowe preached on some, I preached on some, but it was to reveal all of those miracles, the glory of Christ. You know, when we show people our own glory, what we're guilty of is kind of trying to be one-upsmanship. Look how smart I am. Look how pretty I am. Look how rich I am. And it's all designed to form a pecking order. Uh, 
we stratify one another uh, on an external basis rather than cultivating community within the, within the body itself. But when Jesus shows us his glory, we find joy, we find healing. Uh, to give yourself completely to the Lord is to live for the only thing in this entire universe that is worth more than you are, more valuable than you. He's the only one, the only thing in all of the universe that rises above humanity. And so we give ourselves to something that's lasting. You know, if we give ourselves too much, I'm all for the building. I, we plan on donating to the building, but it's a building. But, but you know, compared to, you know, it's a building where we, we can worship the living God in a more powerful way than right here. You know, when Jesus shows us his glory, we find joy and healing, and uh, our life is expanded and our life is enlarged. You know, when Jesus uh, wept over Lazarus, the Jews said, See how much he loves them. And interestingly, there's not one single recorded word that comes out of the mouth of Lazarus anywhere in the Bible. I mean, he's the brother of two sisters, and that might have had something to do with it. <laughs> but but uh, he never said anything, but... Uh, he was deeply loved by the Lord. That came out immediately. He wept at the grave of Lazarus. And not only that, he was deeply loved by a lot of people. And we know that because when our Lord Jesus Christ lifted him out of the grave, they were happy. Everyone was happy with possibly the exception of one person. And that might be Lazarus himself because he had to come back to earth. I don't know where he was during that time that he was in that tomb. His spirit certainly wasn't there. His remains were there. But he came back and uh, one of the few people uh, that had the privilege of dying twice. So... But it points to the greatness of our Savior. Will you bow with me in prayer? Our Father, we um, do thank you uh, for these lessons in the New Testament and the uh, Gospel accounts and this narrative literature that we can so easily enter into both... Uh, emotionally and spiritually father and you put these true stories in there uh, to encourage us along the road uh, that is often discouraging to us and uh, you have a way father of uh, booing us up uh, when we get down of uh, reminding us to understand the difference uh, between this passing life and the one that we look forward to. 
we thank you, Lord, for the confidence that you can give us that's been proven by your work and the longtime saints that have come before us. I thank you for those stories and reminding us of your goodness. You're a great God because you're a good God and you always want our best. And Father, when adversity comes, it's not a sign of your uh, remoteness. It's a sign of your plan and you come closer than ever. And Father, I pray for those in our body right now that you would be close to those that are suffering, perhaps doubting, perhaps totally bewildered in your own way. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.